0: What's up, what's up, Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, because if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Hat tip to Frederick Douglass for that one way back in 1857. This week, we're diving back into the listener mailbag for another round of 20 questions with Nick. This is the 10th installment in the series, so you'll find links to all the resources mentioned at SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A10. and a 10 And if you like this format, I encourage you to check out the rest of the series as well. How it works is I've picked 20 listener questions from the last several months, and I'm going to do my best to answer those here. All right, question number one comes in from Amanda. She asked this in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group. She says, I've got a question. I've been side hustling for years to diversify my income, save and pay off student debt. I've got a nine to five and my boss is aware that I have a business on the side. I don't discuss the business with him, but he commented the other day about it being unethical to take a salary and benefits from a company while building your own company on the side. I don't find this unethical. Has anyone else run into this? So this sparked quite a bit of conversation in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group, where not surprisingly, the community had Amanda's back. Michaela in the Facebook group put it this way. She said, as long as your work doesn't suffer and you're not breaking any kind of non-compete clause in your contract, you're going to be fine. And my take on it is is really similar. Like your employer is paying you to do a job. They do not own your soul 24 hours a day. I remember Julian Gordon explaining it this way. As long as there's no conflict of interest, what difference does it make if you're running marathons in your spare time or running a business? I really like that a little quote from him. Question number two comes from Ja, who asks, should you charge Your friends or family for your service? So, John, I can definitely relate to you on this one. My wife and I have always had a hard time at charging friends or at least charging full price, and her photography business is probably a better example than anything I have. She's got some clients who are fully in the friend zone where she volunteers to take pictures for free or there's some sort of barter arrangement. There are other clients who are grandfathered in at a discounted rate, and then there's everybody else, the full fare folks. So doing the free and discounted work, funnily enough, has actually been a pretty profitable strategy because it's led to a lot of referral work. But I think it comes down to what you're most comfortable with. Like if it's weird to turn a friendship into a business relationship, it's probably not worth charging. That said, you still want to deliver great work naturally and make sure that they know your normal rates. So somebody else I posed this question to said, how I will do it for the friends and family rate is like, you know, here's the sticker price. Here's the friends and family discount. So if they're going to refer someone to you, they have an understanding and appreciation of what you would normally charge. Question number three comes in from Zuber who asks, what are your thoughts on selling an ebook on Fiverr about men's grooming? I've got a blog on this too. I'm also passionate about cooking and have a few recipes that I would like to turn into an ebook. So Zuber, that is a good question. One thing to take note of here is, is Fiverr has really positioned itself over the last several years as more of a freelancing platform. So I firsthand have seen a diminished interest in the digital products that I sell there or historically have sold there. As a slight pivot here, though, I'm wondering if there's a way to turn the content into something that is semi-personalized, like grooming tips based on an individual's style or meal plans for particular diets and maybe test out those types of offers, For example, when I search keto meal plan, I find several offers on Fiverr, and at least one of them has a couple hundred reviews. So people are buying this stuff. The good news is, is it's really fast to test out different offers on Fiverr. Check out episode 375 that we did with Mike Zima on what he called rapid gig prototyping. Mike's a Fiverr pro seller and got his start kind of just testing out different offers and then doubling down on the ones that worked. So I'll link that one up. In the show notes for this episode at sidehustlenation.com/slash A 10. Question number four comes in from Amanda, who asks: The aspect that I've been stuck on in making some side hustles more serious is how to approach branding. I knit and craft. I'm a nature/slash wildlife photographer and a web developer. I'm wondering if you have any advice or resources on if it's better to have a single personal brand and website or if each side hustle should have its own site. So Amanda, my take on these is that if these are going to be customer facing, I think it makes sense to have them as their own separate brands. I know it's a pain. It's a pain in the butt to create all these different resources and websites. But if somebody's coming to you for nature or wildlife photography, you don't really want to confuse them or dilute your message by saying, hey, by the way, I also develop websites and if you need a sweater, I can knit that for you. So you want to be really clear on, on what you do and who you do it for. Question five comes from Eric. He says, hey, I used to listen to your Side Hustle Nation show on YouTube all the time. Loved your episodes. I thought the interviews with other side hustlers were great. I learned a ton. My question is, why did you stop posting the Side Hustle show on YouTube? So Eric, appreciate you sending this in. I have started doing this again for a selection of episodes based in part on your question and several others who've asked similar questions and actually have created a playlist on my YouTube channel Called Best of the Side Hustle Show, or something like that. So, I don't think I'll push every episode over there, but have been testing out doing that for a few because Eric wasn't the only one to be like, hey, what happened? I followed this thing on YouTube and now it went away. So, I am using right now a cool tool that I found called Headliner. I think it's headliner.app to create these little waveform videos. So, there's at least some motion on the screen. I combine that with a graphic that I made with Canva that tries to convey that this is a podcast, like, hey, you know, audio masterclass. So there's like the cover art for the podcast. There's the Apple and Spotify graphics. All that said, this is kind of a controversial practice, publishing audio content on YouTube. But I think YouTube is a really powerful and perhaps underappreciated discovery engine for podcasters. Like I said, I get notes, not all the time, but often enough saying, hey, I found you on YouTube, I discovered you on YouTube. So on the surface, If a video only gets 100 views, that's probably not very exciting in in YouTube land. But you never know where your next raving fan is going to find you. And if just one of those viewers becomes your next big evangelist, of course it was worthwhile to post your content there. Now, one strategy to test out would be the Q&A format or the clip format where you could break up longer form content into, so you're targeting specific question-based keywords. Like if I was to publish This segment of this episode on YouTube. I could break it out and title it something like Should I publish my podcast on YouTube? Now, side note here, I've been using TubeBuddy as a Chrome extension for keyword research on YouTube, thanks to suggestions from several guests like Meredith Marsh, Joshua Lysak, Pete McPherson pointed me to this, as well as others. It's a really cool tool. You can punch in, at least in my case, how I've been using it is punch in a bunch of keyword variations, and it'll give you a score from one to 100 on how likely you are to get your video on that topic to rank. Now, all that said too, I'm testing YouTube right now from a few different angles. The first is resuming some of the podcast repurposing that I did for years. That's what Eric was talking about. The second is shorter form interviews on side hustle ideas that, that I'm interested in that for whatever reason, I don't feel like they would be a great fit for a full podcast episode. For example, on that front, we've done videos on rental arbitrage, scrap metal recycling, donating plasma, uh, driving for Instacart, and a few others. Kind of shorter form video-based interviews. And uh, the third strategy that I'm kind of testing here on YouTube is creating short videos to kind of complement or supplement existing blog content. And I'm curious to test a couple different things here. Number one is if you can Provide a steady source of outside traffic, in my case, from existing Google traffic, is YouTube going to start to rank your video higher in its own internal search? Like you can prove that, hey, people are watching this stuff. It must be good. Maybe we can improve your position in the algorithm there. And the second thing is for pages that aren't already ranking well, is adding a video component going to improve the perceived value of that page and improve the rankings of that page? Time will tell, but I've got some somewhat encouraging early results there. And uh, on top of that, video is just a plain old, fun, new content frontier to play around with. Question six comes from Riaz on podcast monetization. He says, I've got a small group of followers to whom I'm going to advertise some services. If my followers sign up for the service, I expect the service provider to share a cut with me as an affiliate commission, as an affiliate reward. The challenge that I see here is how do I track and make sure that I get my commission. Do you have any ideas on how to do this? So Riaz, the easiest way to do this is probably to encourage them to go through your affiliate link if one exists. And then how, how I would do it is to create an easy to say URL, like I use the Pretty Link plugin for WordPress for this. So that'll let you transform the often ugly, impossible to say, official affiliate tracking URL to something like yourdomain.com slash affiliate sidehustlenation.com slash Udemy or whatever it is. That's if there's an off-the-shelf affiliate program that you can plug into, that you can join for the service. If not, it becomes more of an honor system where it really comes down to trusting this service provider to be honest with how much business that you're sending them. One way that I've done this in the past is you can plug the service and say something like, hey, let them know you heard about them on the Side Hustle show or mention referral code side hustle for 10% off your first month. That gives them a reason to mention your referral code. And that way they'll hopefully be at least tracking that referral code in their system and then can trace those back to you and, and pay out your commission on those. For more on this strategy, we actually did an episode years ago with Ryan Cody, which was episode 34 years and years ago. He started, he talked about how he used similar strategic partnerships to grow his SEO agency side hustle, like this type of referral arrangement. So definitely can be really effective. Question seven comes in from Dan. He says, I've got a question regarding creating my first affiliate website, and I'm confused whether I should go ahead and create my site about Amazon products or ClickBank products. Why or why not? So Dan, I got to flip that question around. I think you should create a website to solve a specific problem for a specific audience and then plug in the affiliate products that would best serve them. Does that make sense? Question eight comes in from Zamil. She says, I really want to sell a product like an ebook, but I don't know how to write an ebook. Who can teach me how to write an ebook? So Zamil, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but the key here is going to be to just start writing. Everything else you can figure out as you go. Now, my book writing process usually looks something like this. You know, first comes the idea, the concept, the hook. I'm going to tell you about my next book project here in a moment. Then comes the outline. Then comes me filling in that outline, and not necessarily like from page one to page 100. Not necessarily going in order there, but just kind of filling in the outline. And then the editing phase. Highly recommend hiring a professional freelance editor here. Another set of eyes is going to catch stuff you otherwise never would have. But before you can sell an ebook, you got to write an ebook, and before you can write an ebook you got to write that first page. The key here, definitely just get started. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question number nine is on personal branding versus business branding. This comes from Henry. He says, I run a wellness center where I offer herbal medicine counseling and food supplements to clients. I want to start a blog to support and complement the wellness center. Question is, should I start the blog under my own name or should I use the wellness center name or should I name it altogether differently? Henry, this is a tough one. There are trade-offs either way. I can see it being easier to build a following under your personal brand especially with the credibility, Henry is a doctor in this case, especially with the credibility of being a doctor, people naturally, I think, want to pay attention to other people, especially experts, rather than companies. I don't know, I'm more likely to follow an individual rather than a brand, if that makes sense. The downside is it can be harder to sell or exit the business down the road if that's something that you see for yourself. Question number 10 is, what business models are you most excited about right now? This actually comes in from several different listeners. So I've got a handful to share here that I'm excited about. Number one is curated newsletters. So in this model, you send out a free daily or weekly newsletter with the best content that you can find on whatever your chosen niche is. Now, I like this for a lot of reasons. Number one, they're really valuable for subscribers. There's so much noise, there's so much clutter, and then you come in as a filter. You promise to cut through this stuff and vouch that, here's what I found, this is the best. So I like that, it's really valuable for subscribers. Second thing is, they can become part of your subscribers' daily routine, which I think is a really powerful place to be. And lots of newsletters have kind of achieved that, Morning Brew, The Skim, The Hustle, there's lots of examples out there. And then the third thing is, the path to monetization is fairly straightforward, either through sponsorships or affiliate partnerships. So if I were to start a new business today, Curated newsletters would probably be, if not my top choice, definitely one of the top choices. The second business model that comes to mind is anything e commerce related. It seems like brick and mortar shopping is just going the way of the dodo. So anything e commerce seems to be benefiting from a rising tide lifting all boats. Another business model that would be wise to mention here that I'm excited about are just local services. These would be the kind described by Nick Huber in episode 373 which we called the Sweaty Startup. These are businesses like Erica Krupin's Pooper Scooper operation, or Chris Schwab's Think Maids, or any number of pressure washing services, mobile detailing companies, moving services, these traditionally blue-collar services. I think there is a lot of opportunity in this space because, like Nick described in that episode 373, many of the incumbent operators are not super tech-savvy, maybe even tech-averse, And a little dose of modern marketing is a breath of fresh air for customers. On top of that, also according to Nick, the demand for these types of services only continues to grow. In other words, it's not necessarily about conquesting market share from other providers, but just that that pie keeps on growing. And then maybe business model number four that I'm excited about is just YouTube. I seem to see video taking over the world and people really accelerating their path to building a brand, building a business through the YouTube channel. Of course, risk and reward because, you know, you're playing in somebody else's sandbox, but YouTube is something that I am excited about. It's so worthwhile to mention here for which business models am I excited about right now. Question 11 comes from Fanny, who asks, how much of my side hustle income should I set aside for taxes? So the answer to this, of course, I'm not a CPA, but the answer to this varies by location and it varies by the rest of your income picture. But my general rule is to set aside 30%. You don't want to set yourself up for a surprise. Come tax time, set it aside. Is this taxable? My general answer is probably, you know, make sure to set some aside so you're not having to come up with money that you don't have on April 15th. Question 12 comes from Ryan who asks, can you point me towards some episodes in the archives that address side hustles that are socially, environmentally, and ethically responsible? So Ryan, there are a few that come to mind. Thanks for asking that, by the way. One that's top of mind is Tiffany Aliche's community. She is the budget nista. She has this incredible community, mostly women, and she's improving their financial lives. We did an episode, I want to say 2016-ish, on how her free challenge that she started out, I think it was a 30-day financial makeover challenge, has turned into a half a million dollar a year business. I know it's probably several times larger than that now. Definitely encouraged by what she's doing. There are some other examples in the archives, like the, the Flea Market Flipper, the Thrifting for Profit episodes. I'll link up all of these in the show notes for you, sidehustlenation.com slash q 10. Basically, they're, they're essentially saving stuff from the landfill, upcycling, repurposing, that's like that type of thing. Brian Winch's parking lot cleanup service probably falls under that category as well. Like, hey, we're making the world a cleaner place. You can find him at cleanlots.com. I liked Nate Dodson. You heard from him last week in the Where Are They Now? series on how to set up a microgreens business, microgreensfarmer.com. And then there's Matt Miller's Vending Machine Business, which supports local schools. Lots of different options here. I encourage you to check those out from the archives. Question 13 comes in from Marco, who says, I've got three blogs and I've started associated YouTube channels with videos for each of them, but I only want to focus on one since it's easier to roll one boulder over a mountain than try to roll three. So I agree, Marco, it definitely makes more sense to focus on one first rather than all three, simplify first, diversify second, right? But which to focus on, there are lots of questions to consider here. And if you're really stuck, or if you're the uh, over analytical type like me, you can plug these into a weighted decision matrix and kind of assign each a numerical score that gives you a way to quantify a probably unquantifiable problem. But I would ask questions like these. Which one am I most excited about? Which one has the most traction so far? What broad topic, what niche is in the biggest industry? Is it better to be a small fish in a big pond or a dominant player in a tiny niche? Both options, I should add, can build a great business. This is probably more just a matter of personal preference. What broad topic do I believe is likely to see the biggest increase in interest, right? Which is part of a rising tide, which is part of a growing trend, which do I see getting to my goals the fastest? Which could you do better than the others and perhaps better than the competition? And then one last question would be, where could you add the most unique value? But I play around with those and see where those lead you. And then if you uh, if you end up with the one that you didn't want in your gut, you can always change your mind at that point too. Question 14 comes in from Mike. He asks in the Facebook group, who here has experienced a loss of motivation in their own business? we're doing super well, but I'm like, how do you recover? So what I told Mike was uh, what helps for motivation over here? uh, A couple things. Number one, throw yourself some softballs in the form of uh, easy to cross off projects. The reason for that is that it helps me rebuild momentum. The second thing would be to read testimonials, read some happy customer reviews, do some gratitude journaling, I find that always helps kind of shake me out of a little bit of a funk, like, oh, no, people people really do enjoy this stuff. This is helpful. You have a lot to be thankful for. And then the third thing, like some other people have said in this Facebook thread as well, some time away often really works well to spark some creativity. I found that over and over again. And even early COVID times when we we're trying to figure out, you know, how to balance different work schedules and having the kids at home all the, ta- all the time, like it ended up being kind of this Weird, you know, there was a lot of pent up creativity where I have different ideas for projects and stuff. So I think some time away, at least in my case, helps rekindle that motivation a little bit. Question 15 comes from Abby. She writes in What are the best ways you found to get people to your blog? Also, how long did it take to get a substantial following? So, Abby, those are interesting questions because the answers are probably different for everybody. And one important note here is that traffic doesn't always equate to following. For me, I will say this, the best way to get people to my blog in raw numbers is Google, hands down. When you have an article that hits for its target keyword, that traffic is consistent, it's high quality, it can last for a long time. But SEO is kind of a long, hard road, and it's often, I mean, not not always, but it's often transaction-driven. And what I mean by that is, I mean, it can be one and done. It's people looking for an answer to a specific question, and then going about their day. I mean, think about how you use Google or your search engine of choice. Often, I imagine it's to solve a specific problem. You're doing research, you're getting a recipe, you're answering a question, you're not necessarily looking for a blog to follow, per se. Now, there are some things you can do once someone lands on your page to make it so they're compelled to follow along, or or maybe more compelled to follow along, like sharing elements of your personal story, maybe you're presenting a more attractive alternative to what they thought they were looking for, right? The old switcheroo kind of a thing. And uh, maybe you're creating content upgrades, you can en- encourage people to join your email list that way. So, if traffic is the name of the game for advertising revenue, affiliate commissions, think of what Rosemary Groner called user-to-content platforms. These are search engines like Google, Pinterest, YouTube to build a following on the other hand. This was the second part of Abby's question think of platforms that are a bit more social. And YouTube has some overlap here because you can showcase your personality and convert more searchers into subscribers, I think, in video than in text. But think of platforms like Instagram, Facebook groups, or or podcasting, in my case, where you can connect with people at various stages of their journey, and they're more in it for the long haul. It's not as transactional as as a Google search. Now, how long did it take to build a substantial following? Well, this is the, the age-old question. Well, what's substantial? It probably took two to three years before it really felt like a sustainable, audience-based, content-based business for me. I definitely encourage you to check out the Side Hustle Showdown episode we did with Jonathan from Fi and Marco from Whiteboard Finance on the virtues of podcasting versus YouTube because both got to the, quote, full-time income level far faster than I did. That was episode 395. I'll link that up for you in the show notes for this one as well. Once again, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A10. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time All right, question 16. We're on the home stretch here. Question 16 comes from Bob. He says, we don't see risk and liability addressed much in Side Hustle Nation. Have you ever bailed from a side hustle because of the liability? And if you drove on with the project, how did you cover yourself? So Bob, of course, what follows here is not legal advice. Let me get that disclaimer out of the way. But this is actually something that has been on my mind lately. And I've been researching different insurance options like business insurance. This depends on what Industry you're in, of course, but if you are providing a service, you're going to want some sort of professional liability insurance. It's generally pretty affordable. Like most of the stuff that I found was in the realm of less than $500 a year. If you are selling a product of your own design, I think product liability insurance is going to afford you some protection against defects and damages. And if you're collecting customer information online, a cyber liability policy might be worth looking into because this can provide some protection against hacking, phishing, security breaches, and maybe even lost income as a result of your content going down. What I ended up buying was a cyber policy that had a media liability component, which generally protects against trademark or defamation claims for online content. Hopefully, I'll never need to use it, but it was a relatively affordable way to buy a little bit of peace of mind there. Question 17 is from Alicia. She asks, what's the scariest side hustle you've ever done? Now, Alicia, anytime you stick your neck out and say, I'm going to do this as a business, it's pretty scary. Now, thankfully, none of my stuff has been physically scary, just more the uh, more fragile emotional kind of fear. Actually, let me take that back. I've I've got a scar on my leg from falling off a ladder in my house painting days, which actually was pretty scary. But let me give you the example. It was it was scary to tell other people about my shoe website. It was ugly. It was slow. The search function didn't work very well. And the reaction was pretty reliably either confusion or something like, all right, you know, you have fun with that. It was scary to start the podcast for, for a lot of reasons. Like, who are you to put this out into the world? Is anybody going to tune in? Dude, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what you're talking about. All sorts of minor details like that, Right. This wasn't really a side hustle, but it was terrifying to do the TEDx talk back in 2014. Outside of my speaker coach, whom the conference graciously assigned to me, and Teresa, who was guest number two on the Side Hustle show back in 2013, I don't think I rehearsed this talk in front of anyone. Instead, what I did was every dog walk, every car ride, that was my private rehearsal time. And I probably looked like a crazy person, like driving along, walking along, just talking to myself. I shared a draft of the script with my brother and with my wife, but it was this weird feeling of vulnerability. Like you're not normally so serious and you definitely put a lot of thought and a lot of care into this. It was really uncomfortable to put yourself out there in that way. And that was just the prep, like the day before the event and the day of the event, those those were much worse in terms of the uh, the butterflies in, in the stomach. But I want to share another scary moment from 2014. I took a break from prepping my book launch for Work Smarter to go to this kind of informal mastermind session, afternoon mastermind session that a couple friends were hosting. I've been working on this book and the launch for it for the last month or so, probably five or six weeks in, and it was set to release into the world the next day. And w- when it was my turn for the hot seat at this mastermind session, a fellow attendee just starts going off, like questioning everything from the launch plan to the quality of the product itself. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that it was coming from a good place, but it wasn't super constructive at that stage in the game. Like, look, this is happening. This is scheduled. What would be more helpful would be brainstorming next actions or potential ways to leverage the possible exposure. But instead, what it led to was a lot of self-doubt and fear over whether the whole thing would work at all. Now, thankfully, it did. And the book reached 20,000 free downloads during that launch week. And it's gone on to sell for several years since. But the bottom line is fear is real. If you don't feel it, I think you're a rare breed. But like others have said, growth happens just beyond your comfort zone. Do the thing that scares you, survive it, embrace it, make it a habit. Like we opened up the episode with, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Question 18 comes in from Eric who asked, how does one find and join a mastermind group? Do people pay to participate or are these groups voluntary? So Eric, mastermind groups come in both the free and paid variety. I'll talk about the free ones first. I am currently in a couple of these myself. The the first I was invited to join, and the second one I organized and invited the other members. The first one's been going on for like the last six years. The other one is newer, we're maybe a year and a half into it so far. This type of group, this free group, is self-organized. You typically meet every week or every couple weeks via a video call, you're trying to hold each other accountable, and you work through pressing business issues. The idea here is to find an accountability group—find two to four peers who have similar goals. Maybe they're at similar stages in their journey, so you can support each other and challenge each other along the way. So I see groups forming in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group all the time. Sidehustlenation.com/fb will get you over there. But if you want to spearhead this, you can invite people from your existing network, whoever you think would be a good fit. On the paid side, the paid mastermind side, you're gonna see masterminds ranging from 100 bucks a month to several thousand dollars a month. The big value that I see from these is in curation rather than direct coaching from the organizer. So we did an episode on this from the hosting or facilitating side with Natalie Ekdahl from BizChicks. And her advice was that the value comes from working directly with other members of the community. So think of it this way. If you're following and resonating with some business leader, you probably have a lot in common to share with someone and support someone who was also following the same business leader. So in a sense, you're paying for that connection that otherwise might never happen. Question 19 is related to my Alexa skill. Several listeners asked, Hey, I enjoyed following your money-making minute on Alexa, but noticed you shut it down. So, this was a year long experiment that ran in 2019, the money making minute as an Alexa flash briefing skill. But I just wasn't seeing the results of the growth to justify continuing it. So, I turned it off to focus on some other projects. Now, I will admit it is entirely possible that I gave up too soon. You know, we've all seen the meme of the diamond miner who gives up like right before he strikes it. But the big thing here was like burning through content so quickly. It became a chore to constantly replenish it. Like anybody who has attempted to, to do a daily anything can probably relate. Like the days are relentless. The days just keep on coming. So that's why I had to uh, turn it off, put it on pause, whatever you want to call it, just to focus on some other stuff. And maybe we'll revisit it at, at another time. Question 20, again, from several different listeners asked, How do you vet guests? So without really intending it to be. Becoming a guest on the Side Hustle show has become a pretty competitive process. I probably receive 50 to 100 pitches a month for what really amounts to a max of four or five spots. Of the last year, I went back through the roster on this one, three or four of those guests came from a completely cold pitch. So if you take those 50 to 100, multiply by 12 and you're at, you know, several hundred cold pitches and only three or four got a spot on the show. So the odds are not great. So what happens more often is that stories tend to bubble up from, from the community, like listeners will recommend somebody, which was the case with Helen Pritchard and Michael Essick and Daniel Throttle recently, or all get curious about a specific business model or a marketing tactic, and then go out and try and find someone to speak to that topic. One thing that I've been trying to do this year is change up the format from time to time sprinkling in some solo episodes. The Showdown series that we did in July was a ton of fun. You've heard some more casual talk show style episodes like we did with Rich Jones a few weeks ago. There's been some Roundup style episodes with voicemail clips from listeners. And then there was last week's uh, Where Are They Now? series. That is a way to hopefully keep things fresh, but also to practice my own creativity within the constraints of the audio format. It's been a ton of fun. Doing the show, like I said, I don't know that I ever intended to do 400 something episodes when I started, but now it's hard to imagine not doing it. It's like become a part of the weekly routine. It's become a part of life in in a good way. In question 21, I feel like I always end up with an extra. I have a hard time counting and organizing these questions. But several listeners also asked, "What's next? What are you working on?" And I feel like I never have a good answer for this. I ask this at the end of pretty much every interview that I do, but I feel like I never have a great answer myself. One thing that I am excited about that I am working on that is happening is a new book project called 1K 100 Ways. As you might have guessed from that title, working title, I should add, by the way, it features 100 ways that members of the Side Hustle Nation community have earned an extra thousand bucks in a time where the ability to make extra money and the skill of cutting your your own paycheck, I think are more important than ever. I wanted to come up with a way to highlight some real ways that real people are getting it done. You can learn more at one k 100 wayscom and hopefully draw some inspiration for your next thousand dollar side hustle. That's one k 100 wayscom And once again, notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode are at Side Hustlenation.com/slash Q and A ten. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.